We've been on a bit of a journey as a church. We've looked for a number of weeks at Colossians chapter 3, and we've been looking at the mortification of sin, for instance, putting to death the old self. We've been looking at putting on the new self. What does that mean in Christ? We've looked at the preeminence of the Lord Jesus, the object of our salvation. We've considered owning the fact that as the redeemed God truly loves us um, as his people, as he promised to those saints of old, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what exactly did that mean? And also, uh, last week we considered this doctrine of assurance. And we're heading toward a goal, and that is a goal of a growth in holiness. A growth in holiness. And today, the Apostle Peter draws our attention to really what is primary in this walk of holiness. And additional to that, we see that the, the Lord has determined to connect and link up our joy with our holiness. And, um, and so that's an important notion that we see here, and that is partly the reason why the sermon is entitled Biblical Antidote to Barren, Ineffective, and Unhappy Christians. This is what the Apostle Peter is dealing with, and so we recognize that in our walk of holiness, primarily uh, there is a great need, if we could limit it perhaps to two things from this perspective, one of those is simply this recognition of our assurance in Christ. Uh, the simple idea that the Father truly loves me, that I stand forgiven, uh, that um, I have a place in heaven, and that he has promise to provide me strength that I need each day to go forward. And with that aspect of assurance, we considered last week this type of assurance that is of uh, the essence of faith. In other words, what does it mean to believe? And if it means anything, it means uh, that the one who has promised will actually give what he has promised. What does it mean to believe? It's uh, this, this idea of assurance from the essence of faith we considered that it had nothing to do with who we were or who we are or what we do. Now the reality is, is that there is another aspect to assurance. And that aspect has to do with entering into these good works that God has saved us for. But that of course involves looking at ourselves and the way the Lord is working in us. And so today we will look at that, Lord willing, from the Apostle Peter's second letter. So let's consider these recipients in this letter. And this is one of the things that would be important for us to, to recognize. The New Testament epistles were written to people who were redeemed. And so the Apostle Peter notoriously addresses a situation in which you had, frankly, unhappy, barren, ineffective Christians. Now, we can look at the Apostle Paul's letter, for instance, to the Corinthians and see that there were some very significant problems in the Corinthian church. But he's writing to believers. Uh, and, so, and so, no doubt, uh, there is 
there, there are people who are false professors. They profess faith. They may even be persuaded to some degree that they're believers, but we know that some of those people are not believers. Uh, there are people that insist uh, that they've prayed a prayer, for instance, or something like that. There are no marks in their lives of a regenerate life, uh, but nonetheless they may be persuaded they're believers. And sometimes we may be quick to discount the profession of faith of individual that may in fact be redeemed. And so it would be important for us to see that the Apostle Peter is writing to a people who are redeemed. As a matter of fact, in the very first verse here, in the first chapter of 2 Peter, read in your hearing, he indicates that his recipients to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The recipients are believers. He lays out the promises of God in Christ. In verse 3, he notes that God has granted to us all things that pertain to to life and godliness. God has given it all to us. It's there for the taking. And the, only the regenerate obviously can, can, if you will, process what it is that God has set forth for us in his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, we also see really the very purpose of this letter is that Many, perhaps even most, don't access, take advantage of the equipment that God has provided for them in this walk, that which is absolutely necessary. And further, we see here that they were to finish out or furnish out their faith. It's accomplished through Knowledge, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And now while we have discussed this before, we recognize that our, uh, you know, the stream of revelation that we have stepped into as God's people is the stream of the reformation of this biblical understanding. And the recognition is, is that Uh, we unashamedly profess that we are a people and the church is a people that uh, sets central to it the proclamation of the truths of Christ. We grow through the knowledge of him. And this may be a bit disappointing for some uh, because everyone isn't so attracted to learning. But the reality is is that the very name of follower of Christ means literally learner, mathetes, disciple. It means learner. So we're learners. We've talked about learning Christ. And so, and the reality is, is this is a process that in our own day, in our own evangelical culture, there's this inclination, and we'll discuss this later, that our faith is mystical or magical. But it isn't. It involves uh, a process. We recognize that justification is an act of God's free grace. It's an act. It occurs in an instant. But that walk of faith, of growing in grace, is something that occurs, in fact, quite slowly over the process of a lifetime. This furnishing out 
of our faith. This supplement indicated in verse 5 uh, is a word that can mean minister to or to add to this knowledge. Now, what kind of knowledge? Sometimes, sometimes there is a reference to regeneration or to coming to, coming to Christ, and sometimes people, uh, they say that they've come to the knowledge of Christ. And sometimes when people say that, what they mean is this person is newly regenerate. But that isn't what Peter is talking about. That's not the kind of knowledge that Peter is referring to here because these people are already in Christ. This knowledge has to do with furnishing out their with finishing out their faith with this comprehensive idea of faith. And I am very appreciative today for Martin Lloyd-Jones, for Simon Kistemacher, for Mark Jones and J.I. Packer as they have assisted in really understanding the, the fullness and the comprehensive nature of our faith. And so the context of the Apostle Peter's second letter has to do with the heresy of Gnosticism in which the readers were being tossed, discouraged, drawn away, and some were apparently miserable. As we look in this letter, we can see that these false teachers who, of course, profess faith, they despised authority, as indicated in chapter 2.10. They had lives that were characterized, characterized by immorality, as indicated in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And although they taught freedom, they were slaves to depravity, as indicated in 2.19. And let's look at the condition of the recipients recorded in verse 8 of chapter 1. They were ineffective. They were unfruitful. They were barren believers. They were believers, but they had little to show for their salvation. Many suffered from spiritual blindness. They're spiritually lethargic. And the apostle, though he expects to die soon, is urging them on. Verse 14 of chapter 1, Peter says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. And we see this kind of pathos in the Apostle Paul's writings, particularly to Timothy. We see that he's coming to the end and so of his life, and he recognizes that God has entrusted him with some very important information about faith. And so Peter wants to make sure not only that they hear it from him, but he's making arrangements for them to be able to access what it is that the Lord Jesus had for him to proclaim even after his death, as indicates in verse 15. Now, the first thing the apostle brings attention to is that they seem to have a wrong view of faith. Many view faith only in its relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. This may be an aspect of the Gnostic influence from false teachers who insisted that the flesh or the physical body was unimportant. This is a certain aspect of Gnostic teaching, and interestingly enough, of course, the word Gnostic means knowledge. But the idea is, is they, they recognized that they affirmed or insisted that the body was completely separate from the spirit and that the body, that all flesh was in fact something that would pass away. And so they, uh, they had no concern 
for what was done in the flesh because they insisted that, of course, in fact, flesh is separate uh, from spirit or soul, that which is non-material. But nonetheless, they rejected this idea um, that what we do in the flesh impacts our spirit. And so they were unbothered by the debauchery of their day because they said, well, that was done in the flesh. And my spirit is separate. It's a separate thing. And so they had lives that were immoral. But we also see that uh, what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is it may be a certain inclination of this Gnostic influence that they viewed, they had a wrong view of faith. There was an inclination to diminish the sweating work of real growth and holiness, which our union with Christ includes. And that's a force that must be reckoned with day after day. Modern evangelicalism is continually affirming justification by faith alone. Yet, it seems to be mindlessly attempting to chip away at the biblical process of being conformed to the image of Christ by a type of flattery, which is clearly popular with many. Perhaps it might go a little bit like this. We, we know when we've talked about the indicatives and the imperatives in the Apostle Paul's writings, this idea that you should be who you are in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. Be who you are in Christ. And, of course, the, the implication there uh, by way of an imperative is that, is that it is the exhortations, it's the commands of Scripture, it's the urgencies of Scripture that urge us on, not unlike a runner running who is paced by someone who's faster. And if any of you have ever run, for instance, you recognize that if you're running with someone that's faster, you're inclined to run faster. And so that's a good thing. That's, that's the purpose of an exhortation um, to draw us into greater levels of holiness. However, in today's modern evangelical culture, it seems that the idea is you already are who you are in Christ, so there's nothing left for you to do. Those who do that insist that God never sees sin in believers once we're in Christ. Thus, there's never a spiritually sensed conviction of the Holy Spirit for wrongs because the wrongs are not seen by God. This, of course, is not a biblical view of how our imputation in Christ's righteousness works. These often claim that any time a believer is mindful and concerned about sin, that it is the work of the devil. Thus, they have no room for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is another thing believers must continually do and be trained to do, to distinguish between the railings of the accuser and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, we want to make sure we understand the point here. So, we've already looked at this idea that our assurance, part of our assurance of the essence of faith, of these promises that God has made, is that we, we firmly believe and own that God loves us and that he's forgiven us. And we've already considered uh, what he thinks of our record of sin, that he doesn't keep a record of sin, that he doesn't remember our sins. That's what the Bible indicates. But we also recognize that the regenerate sin against God every day. And sometimes those are referred to as parental sins. 
And it's important for us to recognize if we have a wrong view of this, uh, if we have a wrong view of the way that God works with the sins in our lives, even after we're regenerate, we, we may think, and there are many that have this impression that none of that matters. And that would be perhaps part of a Gnostic idea that none of that matters, that he doesn't see it. Well, but he does see it. And this is all part of our human experience. All of us have parents, and all of us have parents who had to call out our sin as children. And we recognize, hopefully, in our better moments, that had they not called out sin, that would not be a positive thing. Now, of course, there are some ways that are far better in calling out sin than others, right? There are far better ways to deal with the sin in an individual uh, than, unfortunately, some of our parents have taken. But nonetheless, we recognize that there's a great urgency in us knowing our condition, right? The way of life as a disciple in Christ is the way of correction. If you broke your arm, do you want it to stay bent? No. And this idea of biblical correction uh, actually uses the same word that is described as making right something that is bent. Right? So that's what biblical correction does. And we know that regenerate people want to have spiritual limbs, as it were, that were set aright. Those who reject the truth that discipleship has a cost, that of mortifying sin and conforming to Christ, typically fall into two positions. One is the mystical idea that Christ in us is the one obeying the law of God, moment by moment, such that the believer has no concern over holiness. Now, I'd already um, discussed this briefly as we look at their wrong view of faith, and I mentioned that they had a view of faith that had only to do with a relationship to Christ. And that may strike you as quite odd, actually, that we would discuss aspects of our faith that didn't have directly to do with the relationship to Christ. See, that's part of the problem of this mystical idea. And the idea is once I've taken Christ, there's nothing else for me to do. That there's this magic spell that's been cast over me and there's nothing left. No, there, there's nothing left regarding your justification. That's right. But you've just been set on a journey. You've just been set on a pilgrimage to the glory land that involves a life of correction a life of growing in holiness, of growing in usefulness. And uh, as I would mentioned, as the Apostle Peter is saying here, this usefulness in Christ is directly related to our own joy. And so as I mentioned, those who reject the truth that discipleship has a cost, that of mortifying sin and conforming to Christ, fall into typically two positions. The one is the mystical idea that Christ in us is the one obeying the law, and the other affirms that the Holy Spirit within us directly prompts us to discern the will of God, thus diminishing the necessity of learning the word of God. So whenever trouble is encountered, the only recommendation is to burrow back into the relation with Christ. They view faith only as a whole, not in its constituent parts, as the apostle explains here. To think of faith only 
as a whole is to oversimplify faith to a sort of magical or mystical thing. That once you've taken Christ, there's nothing more for you to do. Now this is in some common writings today. And some have, I think, rightly described it as flattery. Uh, And they would recommend, if you're having trouble, uh, simply to burrow back into the person of Christ. Instead of this recognition that, no, no, you are regenerate, likely. But the sense that you have of a barrenness, of ineffectiveness, this, this situation that you're in where the faith is not being propagated in your family, you find yourself uh, lethargic about spiritual things, that is a situation isn't going to be bettered by, as it were, burrowing into the person of Christ. And some would even insist as they read the scriptures that what they're looking for is information about Christ. Yes, Christ is in every page of the scriptures per se, but nonetheless the reality is is that we're learning and learning Christ is literally learning the skills of holiness. Learning the skills of holiness and it is a slow process. Who wouldn't be attracted to the idea that I can grow in Christ, that I can overcome debilitating problems and see biblical faith perpetuated through my life all by doing nothing? Aspects of these ideas are attractive because they're laced with biblical-sounding words and theological ideas such as substitutionary atonement and freedom in Christ from the law. I've spoken with people who have lamented the mess they've made of their lives and indicate how much they'd like to improve these areas, but when I apply these ideas that the Apostle Peter does, they say they believe that being a Christian is all of grace. Yes and amen. This is the faith position, as Lloyd-Jones says so prominently. Otherwise, it's slipping back into the work salvation, but there's no contradiction The error of justification by works is trusting to the discipline of your soul for the salvation of your soul. But the opposite of trusting in works is not to do nothing. It's to do everything but not put your trust in them. It's a subtle danger. Whenever any trouble is encountered, their recommendation is always the same. Flee to Christ. It sounds so biblical, so spiritual. Insisting on regaling merely in one's union with Christ will never equate or accomplish what the apostle is calling his readers to in overcoming the very serious malfunctions possible even with saving faith, which is ineffectiveness, unfruitfulness, blindness. It's shocking that the redeemed can suffer from such problems, insisting by living in such a way as to reject the urgent need to put off the old man and to put on the new. Now, this is also a subtle trap of the devil. It may shock you. The devil can't remove your saving faith, but he can persuade you that when people say the faith is all of grace, that there's nothing for you to do, he can persuade you that there is nothing for you to do. 
And what will happen then is what happened to the recipients of this second letter of the Apostle Peter. They'll be miserable, ineffective, and barren. And they'll live like that, persuaded that that, in fact, is Christian faith. He'll convince you that any activity on your part is works righteousness. Satan will do that. He's subtle. Those who insist on these unbiblical ideas will inevitably languish in their faith. There will be little to show for faith except discouragement and depression the perpetuation of the faith to family and friends will only be to not do as they do. We commend our languishing condition by assuring ourselves that real saving faith union with the all-powerful God simply is no match for these challenges. We make ourselves feel better by the apparent spiritually mature saying, flee to Christ. If it were one of the illustrations in Pilgrim's Progress, you could picture a wiry man wringing his hands and bowed down, saying, this is what being a Christian is. That's not a biblical picture. So the first problem they had was that they had a wrong view of faith. Again, the Apostle Peter says that they're to furnish out their faith, supplement their faith. By doing this, you can become that which you are not now, thriving in your faith. The next problem the Apostle addresses has to do with the process of what it means to conform to Christ. What it means to conform to Christ. I'd like to draw your attention to a few references to this idea of conformity to Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In Colossians 3.10 where we've spent a good bit of time and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This transformation. This renewal. Now, I'm persuaded that some people, when they see the renewal of the believer, it may be that their idea is that justification made them such that their new person, right, what had completely enveloped and overcome the old man. And that renewal simply means that on every occasion where there's an imperfection, my renewal then takes that imperfection and makes it perfect, as if there's not really any progress to make, as if when we are justified in Christ, not only the outside or the inside, but all of the material of the cup is now clean and that this renewal is simply rubbing off the occasional piece of dirt that's in it. 
But that isn't the idea of biblical renewal. Because we understand that justifying faith, our justification in Christ, is the imputation of his righteousness to us, and it's a declaration of where we stand with God. But it reveals and sets in motion enmity. Because we're, we're two beings now. As the Apostle Paul says, Oh God, deliver me from this body of death. He, he sees that there is in him a raging warfare. The unredeemed have no sense of that. They're at peace with their sin. And you see, the devil uh, has encouraged a good number of evangelicals simply to completely discount that battle and say, well, it's all of Satan. No. No, we've got to distinguish between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusations of sins that have been redeemed. Those are two different things. This transformation is a process that is slow. Perhaps we could look at, as the children of Israel took into the promised land there, we see that there was a recognition by God that it all couldn't be taken at once. And so God placed a certain limitation on the spread of evil and of the challenges that they had so that they could take the land. And the same really, in a sense, works in our own lives. The mystical or magical view of faith applies what happens in justification to the lifelong process of sanctification or being transformed into Christ's likeness. And this is one of the problems and one of the very serious problems with co-mixing justification and sanctification. When I begin to qualify the faith that justifies, then what I've done is I've completely disintegrated the distinction between justification and sanctification. And I've created works righteousness in the process. That as, uh, to some, quite attractive because they are encouraged, but they're encouraged often in themselves. Those living in this present darkness have been marinating in a culture that accuses hard work as inherently unfair. Their only model for financial success is winning the lottery. The slow acquisition of any skill is mocked. But conformity to Christ is a marvelous labor. It's not like taking unpleasant medicine, but it's like coming to life slowly. No doubt those of you that have a significant skill that you have developed through years of hard work have had people approach you and say, well, I'd really like to be able to do that. And if they don't really have an understanding of how the acquisition of skill works, they may expect for you to explain how to do exactly what you do in the next five minutes. And then they may actually expect that they would, we would be able to walk away from you and do this thing exactly like you do. And then they're disappointed. And what happens next? Well, they blame their tools, more than likely. But that's not how conformity to Christ works. And that's why we're commended in these virtues to patience. 
And the patience that the Apostle Peter draws us to, as we'll look at in a minute, isn't this patience of sort of uh, silently drumming your fingers for people that are annoying. No, it's, it's the patience of endurance. It's this idea that, no, how long can you involve yourself in this race of faith? That's the patience that he's talking about. He's talking about not wearying and well-doing. Now we look here at verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now I'm reading the English Standard Version and I would like to draw your attention to this word excellence and I'd like to draw your attention also to the word in chapter 5 that is practically always translated virtue. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. This is a recognition of the full comprehensive nature of faith. And let's see, he is addressing now the second problem, and that has to do with the process of conforming to Christ. And it is front and center having to do with this word that is initially translated virtue in verse 5. Now, the word translated virtue in verse 5 is the exact same word that's translated excellence in verse 3. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones helps with this because I think he has tremendous insight in this passage of Scripture. And the idea here, I think, is that we recognize that virtue, as translated, is not the same idea we get as virtue. And one of the reasons that I think quite simply reveals that in this passage is because why would the Apostle Peter say put on virtue and then put on these virtues? And we could look no further than probably the most prominent and notorious Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, and he defines virtue in this case as moral energy. Moral energy. Moral power vigor of soul. Peter's addressing the urgent need as recipients have of self-discipline. This may be hard for you to hear. The entire context of this part of the letter is a direction to furnishing out or filling out their faith associated with that which is absolutely necessary, and that is moral energy, the discipline to add to their faith these things. As Lloyd-Jones says so frequently, one must take himself in hand Recall that those believers who had been most used of God in the past have enjoyed the deepest relationships with Christ. They're all people who have this particular aspect in common. What is it? It's self-discipline. If you've ever spent any time reading the journals of George Whitfield or the Wesley brothers or Jonathan Edwards or David Brainerd, you will recognize that they were people of immense personal discipline. 
Some of them marked every minute. And they recognized that God owned their minutes. And they were very, very earnest about their own consciousness of their sin. They weren't morbid in that sense, but, but they recognized that it was urgent for them to know who they were, what they were doing, and to walk with the Lord with that kind of discipline. They were people of immense self-discipline and expressions of moral energy. They didn't depend upon their works as meritorious, but they worked and protected their time for God and his work. They kept up with how they spent each moment. They were introspective to the extent that they had a realistic view of themselves and an earnest expectation that the Lord would reward their commitment and conviction. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Peter says in verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's saying that that if these qualities are yours and increasing, you can become what you are not at the moment. Verse 10 implies they were falling. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter's delicate and insightful, but he's not commending them for things they already have. He's encouraging these believers to step into this great necessity of moral energy, of self-discipline, so that they can enjoy being fruitful and effective, can be used of God, so they can enter into this purpose that God has saved them for. The second cause of their condition is this condition addressed with their need of moral energy or vigor, inactivity, sheer laziness. We've all experienced this. Sometimes we chuckle at people who have what we call selective hearing. They only hear the dinner bell. But we've all experienced something kind of like this because let's say you enjoy a certain activity and we recognize that people are really jazzed up over sports or something. You know, they never really fall asleep when they're watching the big game. But when it comes to reading their Bible, they can't stay awake. Or when they go to prayer... Right? They, they, they stumble over their words, they, they pray for a few minutes, and then, and then it's, it's all over. And then there are the distractions. You start with the Internet news, the pop-up box gets your attention, you check your social media zillions of times, and then you forget what it is you were trying to look up in the first place. All of us fight for our lives to master our own life and have order in it. We struggle to merely read our Bibles, much less pray and meditate. Moral energy. 
And again, some of us, we, we think about reading the Bible as sort of putting in time, right? I read a few verses or I read a chapter. That's not how to learn the skill. The Bible illustrations of those faithful disciples have to do with elite athletes in training or soldiers involved in mortal combat. These are skills that are that take a long time to acquire and are or needing to be maintained continually. People that master instruments or athletic prowess, they spend literally tens of thousands of hours doing that thing. And in our current culture, we, we're so fixated on the magical or mystical that Often the response to those people that do things well is, is what? I hate them. Now, I know that sort of there's a little bit of a joke there, but, but it's a total rejection of what it is that has gotten this person to this position. And there's an expression of a certain unfairness. They got this, but I didn't. Nobody ever really takes the big test and aces it without studying. That doesn't happen. But that somehow has become the model for discipleship and growing in grace, this magical idea. Now, let's look at what he calls us to here. We, we know that we have this overarching thrust, and that is to self-discipline, right? This virtue, this virtue, which again means moral energy, vigor, right? This kind of thing. And then he's going to, he's going to talk about these things that we're supplementing our faith with, to furnish it out. Again, these are already believers. This is what it means to learn God's word in ways such as to walk in holiness. The first stop here is knowledge, verse 5. Knowledge. Years ago, there was a book that made the rounds that seemed to enjoy a good bit of popularity. It, I think it the title was something like, All You Need to Learn, You Learned in Kindergarten, or something like that. Sold a lot of copies. Why do you think it did? Well, in a culture that values knowledge and learning, 
and the challenge involved in knowledge and learning, if all I need to know I learned in kindergarten, I got a lot of time on my hands. There's nothing left for me to do. I don't have to read those books. I don't need Encyclopedia Britannica. I don't need any of that. Everything I learned, I need to learn, I learned in kindergarten. Right? That's not what Peter says. And this isn't the knowledge of Christ. This is learning the stuff we don't know as believers. Now, there are a few subtle things that work against that. One is, you've gotten to this point in your life and you didn't know it. I'm doing pretty good now. Are you? I mean, do you find yourself effective and fruitful in your faith? Are you encouraged and joyful about each day that comes? Are you drawing your joy from Christ? Because don't, don't be fooled. I mean, some of you, uh, and I'm not trying to turn, uh, you know, joy and happiness into gloom, but nonetheless the reality is sometimes we're pretty joyful, but we, when we take inventory of that joy, we recognize that it's all circumstantial. You say, I love my life. Do you love your life? Why do you love your life? Well, I've got a great job. I've got a beautiful wife and a great home. That's wonderful. Those are gifts of God. You should regale and rejoice in them. But that's not what Peter's talking about. He's talking about lasting, non-circumstantial joy that permeates your love for house and home and situation in its full goodness. The reason that I bring that up is because some that have dispositions that are inclined to be joyful may look down on those that are a bit gloomy and say, why can't you be like me? And then if you take inventory of why you are like you are, it may not actually be, be because of your own self-discipline in connection to Christ. It may be because of the gifts and not because of the giver. This would be part of this learning. Keep the joy. Locate it on a proper object. The Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Those of us with families naturally look right back to our childhood when we just consider how to live and how to raise our children. And what I have found most often is when we're bringing to bear the biblical knowledge and teaching of that, what often occurs in the minds of people is that they tend to spend all of their time mentally defending how they grew up and how to conform the scriptures into what it is they learned. Instead of living out of the new self, this is the way. Walk ye in it. Knowledge. Next, we have, verse 6, self-control. This temperance, this holding oneself in, this taking yourself in hand. It's the opposite of the heretics. The heretics and heresies are sensual. Sensual. They're, they have an attraction, but the attraction is sensual. It has to do with what we see, feel, taste, touch. 
This is a great problem in our day. Because our electronic gadgets, as I've mentioned before, that draw so many people in and totally waste their lives on idleness, there's a certain pornographic, if you will, nature. Not that they're always looking at pornographic images, but nonetheless there is this ultra-sensory experience that occurs on the phone or on the screen. And it's that thing that overcomes every other impact. It's sensory. And that's why we desperately need self-control in what it is that we're doing, what we eat, what we drink, how much we do of these things. Again, we intend to be people that, uh, of course, do more of that than we should. We've got to lay hold of everything. Self-control. And next we have the steadfastness. The staying power, this perseverance, it's a characteristic of a man who's unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. As I mentioned, the illustrations of the Christian walk are elite athletes in training, soldiers in mortal combat. Godliness is a full consciousness of God's presence in every circumstance. Brotherly kindness. We express our love to the brothers and sisters in the church and that we love one another deeply from the hearts. Romans 13.8 indicates that this love is a sort of debt that we owe our fellow man. And what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans 13.8, owe nothing to anyone except this love. This idea is that when we engage and when we encounter uh, individuals that are in our fellowship, the, rec- the, the, the idea here is that there is a deficit, that I owe them something. Right? Now, all of us likely, at least most of us, have been in a slightly awkward situation where we do owe somebody some money. And when we see that person and we don't have the money we owe them, there's a little bit of awkwardness there, right? But what the Apostle Paul is getting at here with this brotherly kindness idea in Romans 13, and Peter addresses here uh, in this second letter in chapter 1, this idea of, of we, we owe this. This is not just a marginal thing that I do when I have spare time. And I think it's very helpful to think of all these things in terms of skill. They're not natural. Your justification sets this in motion, but it doesn't give you the skill. Someone were to encourage you to learn brotherly kindness. It might offend you. I mean, it might be you might be inclined to think, well, why do I need to know that? I mean, I know that. Well, I mean, how is that working out? I mean, do the people around you, are they persuaded that you love them well? Add to your faith. Furnish out your faith. Brotherly kindness. Verse 8, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Idleness is ineffective. It's unfruitful. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 18.9 says it's downright dangerous. 
Proverbs 18, 9, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Now, this is an interesting verse, and the Proverbs, of course, are an interesting type of literature. But whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him that destroys. The idea here is that they're related. Right? The idle one is very close kin to the destroyer. And that's the idea that Peter is getting at here. A lot of people are busy, but they're really idle, just doing nothing. They spend their hours distracted literally all day long, and at the end of the day, they wonder where their joy is. And it will continue to be elusive because God has permanently hitched up joy to a life of spiritual discipline. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, he's forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. You cannot get to where a regenerated soul will want to be by being spiritually lazy. Laziness is not a strategy for self-preservation, by the way. It is an interesting idea uh, that inactivity will help me live longer. I don't think that's going to work out. But most of the faithful saints of old would, would just go ahead and say, well, I'd rather wear out than rust out. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Life-giving, God-honoring, and enrichment will prevent falling. I'd like to address the subject of liberty in Christ next week from James. But, of course, this is very associated with this particular passage. Psalm 119, 145, also an associated verse, says, I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. Now, if you recognize Psalm 119, you'll know that it has 176 verses, and every single one of those verses has a reference to the Word of God. And what we see here in uh, 145, Psalm 119, verse 145, I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will walk in a wide place. That's an indication of freedom. Why? For I have sought your precepts. There's a popular work today, particularly among men. The idea is that discipline is freedom. That's a biblical idea. Discipline is freedom. Now, we've looked at the illustration before of playing an instrument beautifully. And all the children that play instruments beautifully, they've got to go through the process, the painful sometimes process, right, of hearing their teacher say, hold it this way. Put your hands this way. Hold the instrument this way. 
And there's this long process of conforming, right? Strike the strings this way. There's this long process, but what happens is all of these areas of discipline, right, provide for them the incredible freedom of playing beautifully. Now, the same could, of course, be true of another illustration that I've used, and that is an athletic thing of, of swimming. I mean, there's fighting the water when a little child gets in water too deep and doesn't know how to swim. And there are Olympic swimmers who look, in my humble opinion, like poetry in motion going through the water. There's a technique and a long-learned process of skill and conformity to a right way of doing things that results in something that is, in fact, an expression of beauty. But there's one other thing that would be important, and that is in the playing of music as well as in the swimming. We should think of our walk with Christ as swimming not in a perfectly still pool, but it's ocean swimming. The Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonians, you received the word in much affliction. You see, we don't have the privilege, as it were, of living our Christian life in a context of pure heaven. You might say, well, I wish I could. Well, Adam and Eve had that, and they blew it within hours, apparently. So the Apostle Peter here is urging us on, helping us to recognize, don't be discouraged. This is how it works day after day. You're learning this, right? You're learning, straighten your arm. Don't slap the water, right? Conform to this way, and it'll work for you, and it'll be joyful, and you'll sense the beauty in it. And that's beauty. Let us be a people who, who affirm and love this idea of beauty, and that's what Peter's talking about here, the beauty of a life devoted to Christ. Let us pray. Father, help us, we ask you. Help us to be who we are in Christ. Something that we know that we, we long for, we should long for. We pray that you would encourage us, invigorate us today. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Help us not to waste what you've given us. Help us to be a people who are known as those who are fruitful and effective, those who are seeing the faith propagate through their families and friends, those who are growing in these skills and delight in the Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.